Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Red Box, the politics podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Get my daily email briefing on what's happening at politics at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. How does appreciation feel to you? A rising rush of warmth? A building wave of confidence? At Reward Gateway Eden Red, we know appreciation appreciates in value. Starting with people, radiating through companies to transform their performance and productivity. Capture the power of appreciation with our total employee experience platform. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This week, I'm joined by three people who've shaken off their migraines to abide by the three-line whip to be here. Michael Savage, the Times' chief political correspondent, will argue there are times when it is better off if the speaker doesn't, well, speak. Colonist Melanie Phillips asks when we should align with and sell arms to despotic regimes. But first, Phil Collins on anything but Brexit. It is time to talk about something else. Europe is consuming all the available energy in government and it's taking all the space in newspapers and in news bulletins. It's not only boring, it's also an error of proportion. The untold story of Europe is it doesn't matter as much as people think. The hopes of the Eurosceptics are a fantasy, the fears of the Europhiles are vastly exaggerated. It will probably be mildly good or mildly bad and the verdict won't be entered for years anyway. So it's time to talk about housing, the NHS and education or social care or something else. Well, this is this is music to my ears because every week I sort of try to make the I consider making the podcast a Brexit-free zone, and then something else comes along, and then we end up having to talk about it. So let's talk about the other stuff uh, that you think we should be talking about. Well, I want to talk about Europe. <laughs> you want I, want to talk- to, I want to talk about not talking about Europe. Um, I will talk about the other stuff, but just a reflection on it because it's as a columnist, people always say to you when there's a, a big story around, and uh, the moment two big stories, Trump and Europe. Oh, it must be great for you. And in fact,
fact, it's usually the opposite because they, they're they the only stories around. There's yeah. only limited things that any one person can say about them. So actually, it reduces the scope of things to talk about because you feel slightly odd writing a column about education policy in a week when it's not in the news at all. And yet you think, but I want it to be in the news. So can I put it in the news? So it's actually a really peculiar time when you get the dominance of something like this. I, I have exactly the same thing every morning writing a red box email when I feel obliged to put Trump or Brexit at the top. But I know that if I do that, the fewer people open it, they'll click on it. You know, that you do need a bit of variety. But those two things are... are um, Dominating. But there's also, I've, I've got a substantive point about it too. It's not just um, lament for the fact that I've got nothing else to write about. <laughs> it's, I have always thought that the issue of Europe is less important than most other people th- seem to think it is. Uh, by, I exempt from that class of most other people the British electorate, who in every general election rank it about item number 14. It's not that important to them. Now, of course, when you ask people a direct question, they're going to have a view on it. It turns out they're mostly against it. But that doesn't mean to say that they've therefore decided it's incredibly important. And I think they're right. I think the outcome in the end of Britain being outside the European Union may be good, it may be bad, but we won't know for ages. And I suspect that it will be nowhere close to the sunlit uplands of Daniel Hannan or nowhere close to the three million job losses of Nick Clegg. I suspect, boringly, the truth will be that it's a boring subject with a boring truth somewhere in the boring middle. Many, did you find Europe exciting? Uh, um, I have great sympathy with what Phil just said. I also wake up every morning thinking anything but Brexit or Trump. But I disagree in the sense that, um, I mean, I, I agree absolutely. We don't know what's going to happen. It may well turn out to be less than or more than or whatever. But I just think that it is the biggest thing to have happened in at least a generation. Um, It's uh, hard to exaggerate the importance and significance and scale of what Britain is about to do to detach itself from Europe with which we have been so intimately involved for all these years. The, just the, the act of, of, of um, disengaging legally in terms of what that will entail um, is enormous. And consequently, I think it's only right and proper that we should be giving so much attention to it. I also think that, you know, as journalists, we're brought up to believe that if we say the same thing twice um, in a week, everyone goes, oh, yawn, yawn, (laughs) let's move on to something new. But actually, I find that people are um, consumed by this uh, because they are either very concerned or they're very um, uh, excited, but they are certainly agitated one way or the other. Um, It's a subject where I don't recall a domestic subject ever having this degree of traction among ordinary people. Uh, So I chew the carpet just like Phil at being dragged back into <laughs> Brexit, the Brexit sphere uh, once again, but I find it's almost inevitable that I am. Michael, do you think the difference between those previous elections when Europe hasn't been an issue is because that's, it seemed like a settled issue so people weren't agitated about but something is actually happening now in a way that it wasn't before well it's not only happening it's consuming sort of Whitehall completely really and one of the issues is that the Whitehall machine sees it as such a big task because everything is touched by this question of EU membership that is in overdrive doesn't have enough people it's panicking it's all it's doing it's sucking all the energy but one person who will be delighted by this item is 
the Prime Minister, who is very keen that her... Who, who does listen. We I'm know sure. she's a regular listener, <laughs> listener, and we might even get a letter after the podcast. But um, well, do, leave, do leave a, a, a review on iTunes, Prime Minister. That would be much more useful. <laughs> that's, I think that's her usual practice. But um, she is desperate to have other things apart from Brexit to define her premiership so she's talked about social justice the unfairness trying to improve meritocracy that also brings problems so the moment you introduce new policies and programs that haven't been in a manifesto through a general election you don't necessarily have the same mandate so you run into problems of the lords blocking it and it's really difficult so she has to try because yeah, a government which is defined by a single issue is always running the risk, for the obvious risk, that if that single thing goes awry, you've got nothing else. Now, maybe it's all going to be fine, but perhaps it won't be. Perhaps in two years' time, with a downturn in the economy, not necessarily attributable to us leaving the EU, but there will probably be one, it might look quite choppy. And if at that time we're going through negotiations which are difficult, the government will need other things to be able to say, well, yes, we know we're doing this monumental thing, but also, in addition, we, we do this. We, we're about that. We're fixing the NHS. We've got an education plan. So I think it's very important for the government as well to have other things to do, not, not, not to mention the country. Because, I mean, there are big things going on. Other things carry on. Life carries on, even while we're consumed with this. Yeah, you know, I've been struck by when I've met... Uh, figures particularly on the right of the Conservative Party, Conservative MPs, by how much Brexit has overtaken sort of their worldview. So people who previously I had talked about education or particularly the deficit, people who were really hawkish on the deficit, that whole argument has just totally been swamped by Brexit. And actually most of them are completely happy to see a splurge in spending if it's going to straighten out uh, Brexit in the longer term. So even for those MPs, it's, it's really dominated. And if that was bad before... If, it, if that is a bad thing, well, it'll be bad now. And yet we just our attention's disappeared. I agree it's important that the government should have uh, um, be developing other policies. But I think that even if it had a tremendous success in housing and the NHS and education and social policy and everybody thought, you know, it's a really whiz-bang domestic <laughs> programme, if Brexit goes pear-shaped, that is what Mrs May will be brought down by and that is how she will be judged uh, in immediate terms and in history, I'm afraid. This is what David Cameron has left her with. It's an awful thing to have to define yourself as. And it's, as Melanie says, it's unavoidable. It will define her for good or ill. And my thesis is that it's actually not going to be in the consequences of it, in the end, will be hard to decipher. <coughs> because what we'll have now is this constant war of attribution. Every single thing that happens, people will fight again the original battle about whether we should be in or out with respect to that piece of economic data. So the economy will turn down. One side will say, this is because we're at the European Union. The other side will say, no, it isn't. And we'll have this constant battle. But the pr actual attributable consequences of, of this decision will take place over very many years, will mm. be hard to, to measure, and we won't really ever come to a settled verdict. By the time you could make any serious judgment about whether or not it was a good idea, we'll have forgotten how we got into that mess in the first place, because it takes such That's a long right. time. So politically, it will never quite happen as a cataclysm in the way that the 2007 crash did, for example. I and mean, there were lots of reasons why parallels are drawn between Theresa May and Gordon Brown, but in the way that his premiership became defined by the crash, and then when we got to the end of the sort of emergency period of that, it turned out there wasn't anything going on in Gordon Brown's government and there is a risk for Theresa May that the same thing happens. And actually worse than that, because as you said in your list, uh, Phil, you, you know, housing is a big issue, the NHS crisis is a massive problem, social care funding, um, education, and there were bits happening on there, 
but there's always the risk that when the Prime Minister tries to do something on it, it looks a bit token, and everyone says, what are you bothering with that for? Brexit's the big thing. And then they just do Brexit, and everyone says, why aren't you, do- <laughs> why aren't you doing stuff for all the other areas? It, it is. It's, dif- it's difficult. I mean, and as Michael said, the, just the capacity of the, the state, of the machine, is eaten up with this extraordinary complex thing. Every department has, a, has to engage in it. So it, it's not easy for them to do anything else. But um, other things will carry on happening even if they don't do anything. I'll just make one uh, small sort of revisionist point on the comparisons between Gordon Brown and Theresa May. Gordon Brown wanted the top job for years and years and years. And yet when he arrived in Downing Street, amazingly, he didn't seem to have a fully formed leadership plan programme of what he wanted to do. The crash came along. It's something he was good at. He got involved. With Theresa May, from the very outset... Brexit and the whole question around Brexit has been thrust upon her. So she's known from the outset, this is what she's going to do. All the other things she'll try and do as well, but she's known from day one, it's about Brexit. Just um, before we move on, just from the three of you, if you were talking to the Prime Minister and you said, if there's one thing she should concentrate on apart from Brexit, what, what, should, what should she be doing, Melanie? Um, I think she should be uh, taking the bull by the horns and, to mix my metaphors dreadfully, (laughs) slaughtering the sacred cow of the NHS, uh, moving to a continental style of social insurance, because this cannot go on. Um, This appalling mess of the NHS, pouring more and more money in, short-term sticking plaster remedy. The fundamental fact, it's always seemed to me for very many years, is that the NHS model is bust. Nobody will admit it for all the obvious reasons. It's a sacred cow. It's it's uh, it's you know it, def- it defines Britain, um, but it's a model that doesn't work, um, cannot work now, will not work in the future. And uh, people who can't afford to extricate themselves through private insurance are really really suffering. Um, and I just don't think it's right. And I think that you know a visionary prime minister. Uh, would actually uh, say, right, you know, we've just got to face this now and we've got to do something different. She'd certainly get um, Europe off the front pages if she went for the (laughs) abolition. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the job done. Yeah, I'm not not totally sure the Prime Minister would take your... As well as doing Brexit, you need to uh, uh, carve up the NHS. Michael, what what would be your uh, advice? Bold Minister. Um, uh, Housing. Uh, Prime Ministers always talk about the need for more housing and to uh, build more homes. There's now a huge problem with young people being able to buy. It's actually a distant dream already for many people. Get on and build more homes. And we're seeing this week the housing white paper, but interestingly that's been fronted up by Sajid Javid. It's not something the Prime Minister is taking hold of is in uh, in the same way that she did earlier in the year with mental health and that sort of thing yeah that's right and um i think there's so many institutional opponents to house building because you get into issues around nimbyism and the green belt and all the rest of it but it's just something that someone at some point is going to have to do and phil you've been in the room talking to the prime minister when you worked for tony blair would you would you <laughs> well one of the things that uh, that government never made any progress on and which the coalition government didn't make any progress on was the education of about half the country who don't pursue an academic uh, path and in Theresa May's first speech when she became prime minister was a you know a fairly boilerplate meritocratic speech but all good stuff and if she wants to make good on that then she do something about the education curriculum for those kids, and there's lots of them, who are failed after the age of 14 because we force them down an academic path which is not suitable for them. Loads of food for thought, though. There's probably a whole uh, another podcast on that. Um, let's move on, though, uh, for now. And, uh, Melanie, let's look at foreign affairs. 
This week, the High Court starts hearing the claim that arms sales to Saudi Arabia breach weapons export laws. This is because of claims that the British-armed, Saudi-led coalition in Yemen is disproportionately killing civilians. In fact, there's evidence that the Houthi rebels are using civilians as human shields. The deeper issue is whether it's ever right to ally ourselves with despotic regimes. Many, you've written about this in your column uh, this week. As I was reading it, I was thinking, well, is this a case of my enemy's enemy may be my friend? But then, as you point out, it could be my enemy's enemy may still be my enemy. There again, my enemy's enemy may be my enemy, but also my friend at the same time. And this is the problem. It, Precisely. It, in, in, in politics generally, but in foreign policy as well, people like to pick goodies and baddies, and actually it's more complicated than that. It's very complicated, um, and particularly in the Middle East. Uh, where it's incredibly complex and confusing, not least because um, people who are enemies in the Middle East may be simultaneously allies in another cause. So you have, for example, Sunni and Shia at each other's throats historically, and yet uh, they come together when it comes to opposing uh, or or fighting uh, Western interests. That's just one example. But I find this, I mean, it's it's a really horrendous problem, and I think about it a lot. Uh, when I'm trying to avoid writing about Brexit or Trump, I write about it um, <laughs> because it's it's a really thorny issue. You know, you have these dreadful regimes uh, which are, you know, tyrannical over their own people, uh, which may be posing a threat to us. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the the foundational uh, state uh, uh, where um, the Wahhabi strain of, of Islam, which led to Islamic extremism and Islamic terrorism, which so threatens us and is, uh, you know, has taken so many lives in the West. That's where it started. And Saudi has exported that and continues to export that through funding institutions of further education and, and learning uh, in, in, in Britain and America and in other countries. So, you know, for years, Saudi has been not just an enemy of the West, but has actually been subverting and undermining us. And yet, and yet, and yet, um, there are other causes where we need Saudi Arabia's help, for example, in fighting Iran. And so it's in Sunni Saudi Arabia's interest to fight Iran wherever it can. Um, That shouldn't really concern us, except that it does concern us, because Iran, in my view, uh, poses an immediate uh, and unconscionable threat to the West. And yet we've all behaved over the years as if this war that Iran has been prosecuting against us hasn't been happening. And anyone who's talked about taking action uh, against Iran because of this is vilified as a warmonger. Now, uh, Saudi Arabia can't have that. And it's in our interests to uh, help stop the march of Iran in the region. That's why Philip Hammond, when he was foreign secretary, said we will give Saudi Arabia every help that we can, uh, short of military uh, uh, involvement, uh, short of of, of our combat troops on the ground. However, there is a question of whether that Saudi-led coalition is disproportionately uh, uh, killing uh, civilians. And if it is, then that's something that we should be concerned about. Out, and I think we should be bending every uh, every sinew uh, to persuade the Saudis uh, to do this stuff properly, to prosecute the war in Yemen according to the Geneva Conventions. Now, our government says it is. Saudi says it is investigating 
claims of abuses. We don't know whether to take that really seriously. But there is evidence, as I said in my column, that um, you know civilian casualties are dreadful whoever causes them. But the fact is that there are numerous reports that the Houthis are using civilians in Yemen as human shields. That is to say, they are positioning their men and materials among civilian population, either to, to deter the Saudi coalition from attacking them, or if they kill the civilians, then they can count on international outrage from the Oxfams, the Save the Children's and so on, to stop the military action against them. And I think it poses very serious problems uh, for any democratic state that wants to defend itself, but also wants to do the right thing. I just, I, I agree, it is extremely difficult. And Saudi Arabia is the, is the best example, as you said at the start, that it, it's very easy to make the case against Saudi Arabia, as, as you made. And yet at the same time, we get so much from that alliance as well in other conflicts. And the, the demand for consistency that people always um, seek in foreign policy is almost impossible. To, to be pure and unsullied in any of these conversations is almost impossible. Consistency, said La Rochefoucauld, is a hobgoblin of little minds. <laughs> and it's, it's impossible to do it. So any simple solution will never work, which doesn't stop almost all of the criticism about foreign policy being of that kind, because it almost all is. Why, it's always about hypocrisy and consistency to virtually unimportant, unrelated questions. But can I ask you one thing, which is a pure and simple uh, question, which is, why do we sell arms to anybody? Mm. Why don't we just not sell arms? Mm. There is one, and, and, I, and in a sense it's deliberately naive, mm. but I once tested that out, that naive belief. I, I thought I'd write it. I wrote a column testing out my own naive argument and found it stood up much better than I thought it did. And the reaction I got from people who, was, who knew a lot more about it than I did was also quite good in the sense they didn't think it was a ludicrous suggestion. So I offer it as a, as a naive but non-ludicrous suggestion. I have the same naive thought uh, quite often, and I have great sympathy with that. The conventional argument in response is that if, you don't, if, if we don't sell arms, then other worse people will. Um, and I, I do think actually that is quite a, a serious uh, thing. But then there is the additional thing that if you have um, a situation like Yemen, and there are other situations, where we actually do have a dog in the fight because um, it's, not our, it's not our conflict, but on the other hand, the blowback to us would be so bad, we do need to take a side against X and in favour of Y, then uh, if we don't want to put boots on the ground, then we really do have to arm and equip people who will do it for us. And so, you know, the alternative to that, if you're not going to sell arms to anybody, is that you stand back and you allow, you know, ISIS to 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 um, to operate uh, without uh, uh, being stopped wherever it's operating. You allow the Houthis to win in Yemen, etc., etc., which will blow back to us and cause us to uh, put our own people at risk. So, I. Uh, I I have sympathy, great sympathy with what you're saying, but I think it's not practical. Michael, one of the things we've seen in recent years is the reluctance of the British public, but particularly the British Parliament, to support any military involvement. We've, saw, you know, we've seen it in Syria, we've seen it in Iraq. So is the consequence of that that we basically end up subcontracting our military involvement by either selling arms or standing behind other countries that aren't willing to, to step in in that way? Yeah, well, I mean, we can see what a knotty problem it is. Um, and actually, there's a committee, and it's quite an obscure committee in Westminster, that looks at arms exports. And I remember speaking to a foreign office minister 
who said in the Foreign Office, we call it the Glorious Hindsight Committee, because obviously what it does is look backwards a couple of years after, and lo and behold, our friend is now our enemy, and suddenly all the weapons are in the hands of the wrong people. So that really tells us how complicated this problem is. And of course, when you make a decision to intervene, it has consequences. And when you don't make a decision to intervene, that has consequences too. And that's often the bit that's forgotten. And of course, into this complicated debate comes the big blonde mop of Boris Johnson. And we saw exactly what happened when he said what he thought was the obvious, that Saudi Arabia acted as a puppeteer in the region. There was quite a lot of blowback from that, including from Downing Street, Mm. who, as Phil said, wanted consistency with our relationships in the Middle East. Mm. And and part of the problem is that the politicians end up sort of saying, in that, as Boris showed, nothing, because they can't get into what they basically mean, which is, well, we just have to accept that there will be some civilian casualties, or we have to accept that we're selling weapons to people that we don't necessarily like, because overall, in on balance we think that that's a price worth paying or it's for the greater good or we think that the out the, the alternative might be worse and, and that's why people get frustrated um voters with um foreign policy questions because you end up saying when you're in the foreign office it's complicated and you know what you've got to be hard-headed about some relationships and even though there's all these questions about saudi arabia and other places do you know what we've looked at the evidence and we've probably ended up in the right space and that's a difficult argument to make but it is a fascinating argument and i suspect it, it is another one of those which gets buried underneath brexit i'm sure we'll try and uh, return to it in the coming weeks uh, michael let's return uh, let's get close to home let's go back to westminster and the speaker john burke as you say never mind brexit the deficit or even the nhs crisis nothing gets some mps going more than a breach of parliamentary protocol and john burko's excoriating attack on donald trump and a vow to stop him talking in parliament has caused anger among some tory mps many of whom didn't really like him in the first place uh, has the speaker done anything wrong and could this be his downfall well, it was quite extraordinary yesterday, um, having, you know, as I'm sure everyone does, if you tune in for points of order on uh, BBC Parliament of an afternoon. Um, it started off, actually, Berkeley had a big row with some Tory MPs about whether or not the clerk should be wearing a wig. He'd announced that the clerk's going to stop wearing wigs, and some of the traditionalists were very cross about this. And he, got, he was very cross with them and put them back in the box. Yeah. And actually, that would have probably been a big row on its own. And then he stood up and said he didn't think that, that Donald Trump should be coming. I mean, my immediate take on it is nobody's actually invited Donald Trump to speak in (laughs) Westminster Hall. It's sort of been got up by MPs who don't like Donald Trump, warning that he must not be invited, to the point that they signed an EDM, or early day motion, which is like a petition for MPs, allowing Burko to stand up and knock down this enormous straw man. Yeah, so here's the thing about John Burko. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, He annoys MPs because he can be, lo and behold, a bit pompous, a bit self-important. He spends a lot of time telling people off for talking too long before giving a huge speech himself. Um, And on the other hand, he's been quite good for parliamentary life. He grants a lot of urgent questions. Ministers are held to account. So on the whole, he's seen probably journalistically as a good thing, but he annoys a lot of Tory MPs. And this is an occasion where he's made a big intervention on a political question, albeit an overseas political question, on Donald Trump. And he's had the effect of uh, making his enemies in the Tory party saying, aha, you've defied your impartiality, we've got you, you're in trouble. I thought the funniest thing about the whole thing was, a few weeks ago he told off SNP MPs for clapping because they'd just arrived, they were new, they didn't know, you weren't meant to clap, so he told them off. After he'd given his big speech about Donald Trump, 
He got a round of applause. And did he tell them <laughs> he off? No, he said to a Tory MP, sometimes it's just easier to let it go. Rather than cause a big fuss, was what he said, which is, uh, you know, he certainly managed to cause a big fuss. Uh, Melinda, what do you think? Do you, do you think he overstepped the mark? Totally. I mean, the whole point of the Speaker is that he's apolitical. That's why he's the Speaker. And it really does um, strike me uh, with some force that, you know, uh, here he is standing on his high horse saying, you know, we're not, I, I don't think this man... Uh, the President of the United States should be invited to address Parliament because basically he's, he stands against our sort of deepest values. And there he is, the Speaker, uh, destroying, you know, parliament, a, a parliamentary value, which is the impartiality of the Speaker. Um, it's incredibly stupid. Um, he doesn't know what the rest of Parliament thinks. Maybe the rest of Parliament, maybe the, the MPs all think the same thing, but it's quite possible that they don't. It's quite possible that they would think that whatever you think about President Trump, he is the leader of, uh, uh, he is the President of America, leader of the free world, our most important ally. Um, and it's incredibly stupid to sort of say, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to have him in. And it's just incredibly childish. I mean, <laughs> racism, sexism, what, there have been no leaders who have addressed Parliament who are, or have not been welcomed into Britain and given state banquets and, you know, tea with the Queen. I mean, all these dreadful despots that parade through Britain uh, because it's in our interest for them to make a state visit. And, you know, this man, Donald Trump, is supposed to be worse than all these people. This is a form of hysteria, I think, that's, you know, possessing us in the West um, about Donald Trump. Um, you know, I don't particularly care for him. But, I mean, this idea that he is, you know, the worst witch in the world is just ridiculous. And for the Speaker to lend himself to this nonsense it is not just nonsense but it, it doesn't just demean John Burko but it demeans the office of Speaker and that is I think pretty unforgivable Phil? I agree with all of that it was grandstanding, it was very peculiar I don't know what he thought he was doing um, insofar as I understand parliamentary protocol he hugely overstepped the authority that he has uh, I don't know that it's, is it his job even to decide this, even if there were an invitation to be forthcoming. Well, he, he, he went to great lengths. He's, he's one of the three key holders. Which I, don't, I don't know if that was literally like he's a sort of caretaker with a big bundle of keys <laughs> and he, he'll unlock Westminster Hall if he wants to. Um, but he, thought... he was one of the three who could uh, ultimately open the doors to Westminster Hall. I mean, if, the big question is that nobody's asked him to do that. No. <laughs> There's been no conversation between Downing Street and uh, the White House about Donald Trump addressing Westminster Hall. But surely if, if he is asked at some point, it's not his job to to decide that he's going to make a great big speech and say no. It's his job to get his bundle of keys and open the door, isn't it? <laughs> well, it, that's, that's, that's how, how I understood his job. It. And he was quite happy. That lots of pictures have been circulated of him sort of sitting, grinning inanely behind President Xi of China. That was that was an OK thing Precisely. for him to... For I, him I thought to his do. argument, too, was, was nonsense. I think it, as it, it is um, hugely exaggerated to say that President Trump is a threat to our values. I mean, what does what does that mean? That's a very profound statement of whom, which is true of very few leaders in the world. Um, and it's not true of Trump, even though he, you know, okay, he might be a sexist. Well, yeah, loads of people are sexist in Britain. Yeah. Always have been. And actually, uh, one, one, one thing that hasn't changed massively under Burke and the Commons is, is the fact that there's still a lot of sexism and misogyny. Only in the past couple of weeks, you had Nicholas Soames woof woofing at a, MP across, a female MP across the, the chamber. The idea yeah. that... that uh, Westminster itself is this sort of power. It was, power it was horrible attention-seeking. I mean, there is an interesting and serious question about the extent to which Trump will respect the confines of the American Constitution. That's a very interesting question for America. Um, John Burke seems to think he's, he threatens the unwritten English Constitution. He's, <laughs> he's the badger of our times. It was 
silly grandstanding. Yeah, there's there's also an interesting question around the level of engagement from our government towards the Trump administration. Have they got too close too early? All those are totally legitimate questions. Mm. But it strikes me in that context where that debate is going on about how close you should be to Donald Trump, for Burko to make that intervention then felt sort of like a deliberate spike at number 10. Mm. And for a speaker to do that is really quite a big deal. I can't really think of it happening before. Now, he'll probably be saved from any sort of formal challenge by the fact that Labour and the SNP are on his side. And when you want to get rid of a speaker, basically, you need a cross-party momentum to do that. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, Why do very you think unusual. Why did it, Michael? What, what do you think his thinking is? Well, he... So there is this backdrop that he likes to see himself or paint himself as a sort of protector of uh, British democracy and parliamentary tradition. There's also the backdrop that he got the job, basically from the support of Labour MPs who saw him as a basically a Labour person in a Tory MP's clothing. Um, so And he does also like a, a jab or two at his Tory colleagues, um, and all that adds up to, to this pretty big intervention yesterday. I think you can't underestimate his enthusiasm for just winding people up, and particularly if he can wind up the government. And he's done it, you know, there were times and there were clips on YouTube of week in, week out at the unwatched departmental questions. He will have unnecessary digs at ministers and that sort of thing. And this is the sort of ultimate grandstanding dig. And because he likes, because he's, because of his quite dramatic political journey from being on quite on the right of the Tory party to not adhering to our basic values exactly to now 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 portraying himself as sort of halfway between the sort of sort of Corbyn East of an SNP that's his sort of you know and he thinks he's he's probably sort of overcompensating on that well um, if he's got an identity crisis I wish he'd take it elsewhere to play it out <laughs> rather than the speaker's chair and partic- particularly at a time when parliament is sovereign we're being told post Brexit and this is where all these decisions are you know there is a, parliament's playing a, a sort of a very important role and he should be rising above this because mm. it, it's not a very big step from what he said about Trump yesterday to what he, to what he could say about the merits of Brexit and the way that that's been yeah, played I mean, out and handled. He's got one eye on his legacy just as a Prime Minister might how long, much longer is he going to be in the Speaker's chair? Probably not until 2020 so maybe he wants one or two things uh, recorded Does that mean that if an invitation were now issued to President Trump to address the House that he would resign? Oppose it. What? What can he do? What, where would the formal hide the keys? Hide the keys, not <laughs> let him in. Like Black Rod, he'd be banging on the door. Maybe he'll be overruled by the Queen. It is a, a state That's visit true. after all. Right, no. I suspect that what Donald Trump really wants isn't to address this. I mean, he's not. He's not one of life's great orators. He wants to. He wants the gold carriage up the mall. He probably wants to play golf with Prince Philip. Mm. Go to Windsor. Um, you know, meet Kate and William and ruffle the heads of the royal children it's basically a tourist <laughs> exactly <laughs> he wants one of those big hats from that uh, big jester's hats from one of the stalls outside <laughs> that's right with john burko with a umbrella in the air showing him the way to go yeah exactly <laughs> right exactly right uh, uh thank you very much for that uh, but that's all we've got time for this week as ever um like i said do sign up to my morning email briefing at the times.co.uk forward slash red box do subscribe to the podcast on itunes where you can leave a review and we'll try and read out some of the best ones next week but for now from phil michael Melanie and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 